Mark 14, starting in verse 1. I'll read this for us. Uh, Mark records, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Father, we love you and we love your word. Uh, we pray that our whole hearts and minds would embrace the truth that we find here in this passage. Holy Spirit, would you be our teacher? And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the stage at this point in Mark's gospel is being set for Jesus to be killed. We are entering into the last portion of Mark's gospel where we see uh, Jesus being betrayed, Jesus being arrested, being tried, and uh, being crucified. Uh, Mark, we're going to see, he, he slows his pace, uh, unlike the rest of his gospel where it's very fast-paced, very action-packed. When he gets to these scenes, he slows his pace down and he be, he's very certain and sure to add the fine print details, making it very clear that this, these events that took place in Jesus' life are very important and very significant for all of us as we study his word. As we look at this account that he lays out for us in the beginning of this chapter, he tells us that we're just a couple of days before Jesus would be crucified. In fact, if you take a look at verse 1, verse 1, he tells us it was just two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I like to imagine this scene as a movie. Uh, if this uh, account was being filmed, I, I imagine that uh, verse 1 opens with a huge kind of wide, wide shot camera lens of an aerial view of the Jerusalem cityscape and all the streets are flooded with thousands upon thousands of Jews who have come to celebrate the big Passover feast, the great memorial feast remembering of, of how God delivered his people out of Egypt. Everyone is excited. Everyone is celebrating. But behind all of that celebration, behind the scenes in private, there is something diabolical and sinister going on. 
If you take a look again at verse 1, Mark says the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. I imagine the camera kind of panning away from those celebratory streets to some dark room with darkly dressed men whispering sinisterly to each other of how they're going to kill Jesus. And they have a problem because in verse 2, they realize with the city streets filled with all these Jews during the feast, they have to be careful how they seek to kill Jesus lest they have a huge uprising and protest in the city of Jerusalem. You can almost imagine them sitting around the table together and maybe one of them pounds his fist on the table and says, I don't care how it's done. But Jesus must be killed. The the stage is being set to kill Jesus. And as Mark prepares us for his betrayal, what he does in this account is he contrasts two characters for us. One, a woman who held nothing back for Jesus. And the other, a man who turned his back on Jesus. A woman who serves as an example to us of holding nothing back for Jesus and Judas the betrayer as a warning for us of not turning our back on Jesus. Well, as he starts, we see this woman who held nothing back for Jesus and her example of holding nothing back for him. If you take a look at verse 3, once again, the movie of this passage, a scene would shift from that dark and uh, that dark room with those darkly dressed men to a happier scene, uh, a brighter scene of Jesus and his disciples around a dinner table together in a house somewhere in the small town of Bethany, the house of a man named Simon. If you take a look at verse 3, uh, while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, he was reclining at table. This Simon was uh, supposedly someone that Jesus probably healed from his leprosy, And Simon, out of an appreciation, out of gratitude for what Jesus had done for him and giving him his life back, throws an appreciation dinner and invites his disciples to come and to enjoy this meal together. Now, John, in a parallel passage in his gospel, the gospel of John chapter 12, gives us more detail about this dinner than Mark gives us. He tells us that the attendance was pretty amazing at this dinner. Uh, Not only are Simon, Jesus, and his disciples there, But the sisters, Mary and Martha, are also around that table. And Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, is also at this dinner party. So this is a dinner party I wish I had a ticket to. Uh, This would have been an amazing dinner. You can just imagine what they must have talked about. I'm sure the disciples may have asked Lazarus, hey, what was it like, you know, in between when you died and when you rose again? Did you see anything? What was it like? Uh, What was it like when when you you woke up from the dead and you found yourself wrapped in grave clothes and we were tearing them away? Uh, maybe, Maybe Simon told the story about what his life was like as an ostracized leper and and what his life was like now that he'd been healed from Jesus. An amazing dinner. But something is about to happen in the room that will change the dynamic of the dinner profoundly. Because if you take a look at verse 3, as Jesus was reclining at table, a woman came. Now that doesn't raise our 21st century American eyebrows, but it would have raised the eyebrows of the original readers of Jesus' day and the custom of what was appropriate for women 
at a dining room. Uh, in Jesus' day in the Jewish culture, it was inappropriate for women to enter into the dining room while the men were eating. The only reason that a woman would have come in would be to serve the food or to serve the drink. Uh, some cultures are still like this today. Some of you may have had the privilege of going to Africa, and as you sat, perhaps as a man around the table, uh, you looked around and you thought to yourself, where are all the women at? And maybe you made the mistake, the very grave mistake, like I did, of going into the kitchen to go and talk to the woman and very quickly realize that without intending it, you've just embarrassed her greatly and heaped shame upon her for going into her presence during the dinner that she was seeking to serve. Cultural differences we can't totally wrap our minds around, different strokes for different folks. But whatever the case, this would have raised the eyebrows of all the men as this woman came in. Now, John, in his gospel once again in chapter 12, tells us who this woman is. Mark leaves her anonymous, but John tells us who she is. This is Mary, the sister of Martha. This is the Mary who wept with Jesus at the grave of Lazarus. And this is the Mary who chose the better portion and sat at the feet of Jesus while her sister was busy uh, serving. This is the Mary who witnessed the resurrection of her brother Lazarus from the dead, uh, from just a command of his mouth. This is the woman that Jesus knew so well, a good friend of Jesus. And she is coming into the dining room to render an act of service to Jesus more precious than just serving the food. What does she have? Let's take a look at verse 3 again. In her hand, she has an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. Most likely, this would have been a family heirloom that had been passed down through the generations in Mary's family, uh, much like you may have uh, uh, jewelry from your great-grandmother or World War II memorabilia that your grandfather brought back overseas from the war uh, with him. Whatever this was, it, it would have been uh, of great sentimental value, and it surely was of great financial value, because in verse 5, if you take a look at it, the men apprise uh, this ointment as being more than 300 denarii in its value. Uh, that is even more than a full year's wages. So Mary is essentially bringing her emergency fund in her hands into the presence of Jesus. This is her savings account. This would have been something that she might have been saving up for a financially rainy day. What is she going to do with it? Well, in verse 3, she breaks the flask. Whatever she's about to do, she's doing something that she's not going to turn back on. And to our surprise, she pours it over the head of Jesus. She gives it as a gift to her Lord. She holds nothing back for Jesus. Well, the discomfort in the room is palpable. The men in the room think this is highly inappropriate. In fact, they think that this is completely wasteful. Take a look at verse 4. As they're watching this unfold, some of them said to themselves indignantly, that's the same word for a, a horse that's blowing its nostrils, and this is hot anger, why was the ointment wasted like that, they say. Verse 5, very self-righteously, they say, this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. In other words, think of all the starving kids around the world that this could have fed, is the card 
at their pulling. Now, it's interesting, in John's gospel, John chapter 12, guess who is the one who started up all this ruckus? Judas. Judas is the one. Judas is beginning to show his true colors here uh, among, uh, among his disciples. And now here they are, they're scolding her uh, for this act that she has done. How do you think Mary feels at this point? This is not a decision I'm sure that she made lightly. I'm sure that she calculated quite a lot. She knew the costliness of the sacrifice that she was giving. She knew the cultural price of even walking into that dining room. And if she had any bit of nerves, any bit of doubts as to whether she should do this or not, the men in the room are now all affirming any doubts that she may have had and heaping upon her shame for this act that she has done. Well, how is Jesus going to respond as the oil is running down his hair? onto his garments and the perfume is filling the air take a look at verse six jesus immediately goes to the defense of mary he says leave her alone why do you trouble her in other words gentlemen you shut your mouths and he helps them to see from the right perspective what she has just done for him he says she has done a beautiful thing to me not a wasteful thing a beautiful thing he addresses their self-righteous comments about the poor in verse 7 he says you always have the poor with you and whenever you want you can do good for them but you will not always have me Uh, it apparently went right over their heads that it actually could be said that Mary did just give this gift over to the poor because Jesus, we know, was a poor man. He said himself in Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, speaking of Jesus, said, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich the point that jesus is making is not about uh, whether or not uh, we should care for the poor obviously we should his point is that mary understood the uniqueness of the time at hand in other words you can always do good for the poor but mary understands that her time to do great things for me is soon coming to an end take a look at verse 8 Verse 7, rather, at the end, he says, you will not always have me. In verse 8, he helps them to understand what her perspective was. He says, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. See, Mary believed that which the disciples wouldn't embrace, that Jesus was soon to be killed. Do you remember all these preceding chapters of Mark that we've studied As Jesus prepares his disciples to go into Jerusalem, he kept repeating to them time and time again, as we go to Jerusalem, I, the Son of Man, am going to be given over to the hands of men and I am going to be killed. And time and time again, it went right over the disciples' head. It couldn't get into their thick skulls. But Mary, Mary had enough faith to take Jesus at his word and understand that indeed he was going to die. I just imagine Mary that morning, uh, the morning of the meal. She wakes up in her bed 
and she starts thinking about all the preparations that need to be done for this dinner that she's going to be hosting, and Jesus is going to be there. And as, as she thinks about Jesus, her heart experiences a mixture of emotions. On one hand, she's, she's filled with emotions of gratitude and, 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 and praise for all that Jesus has done for her and her family in the past and raising her brother from the dead. But then as she looks at the future, she thinks about Jesus' words of his death. She experiences sorrow and agony. And she wonders to herself, what can I do? What more could I do to honor my Lord, my Savior? What could I do for Jesus? And maybe her eyes went over to the shelf on the wall near her bed to where the alabaster flask that had been passed down from generations sat. And she thought to herself, I'm going to give him my greatest treasure. I'm going to anoint him for his death. Now, John, once again in his gospel, he tells us that not only did Mary anoint Jesus' head, but also his feet. In John chapter 12, verse 3, it says, Mary therefore took a pound of this ointment and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. An act of servitude, an act of humility, putting herself in the place of the servant and elevating him as the master. But that detail about her hair is a significant one. Because a Jewish woman's hair was her glory. And a Jewish woman would never have let her hair down in the presence of anyone other than her husband and other female company. It was an act of self-abasement, an act of vulnerability, a, a great act of, of servitude to do this. And I love what Kent Hughes said. He said that in Mary uh, wiping Jesus' feet with her hair, she quite literally was putting her glory at Jesus' feet. And not only has Mary made a material sacrifice here, she's putting her very self, she's putting her very heart, giving it all over to the Lord Jesus. What an act. Now, what can we learn from Mary here in her amazing act of faith, her amazing act of sacrifice? I think two things. Number one, I think this text shows us the amazing place that women have in the kingdom of Christ, that women are, uh, they play a significant role in the kingdom of Christ. Uh, I didn't know this in my research this week. One of the commentaries showed me this. This is an amazing little detail. I wonder if you noticed it as we've made our way through this gospel. There are 22 mentions of women in the gospel of Mark, and 15 of those mentions are examples of amazing faith courage and sacrifice for Jesus. Uh, that is very rare for ancient literature to uh, uphold uh, women as such an amazing example, example as this in a day, in Jesus' day, where women were kind of pushed to the side, not seen as important. When Jesus came, he reestablished the central role that women play in the kingdom of God and the service that they can render for his glory in amazing ways. In fact, Jesus was a rare rabbi in, this, in the fact that women were constantly surrounding his ministry. In Luke chapter 8, verse 1 through 3, we see the 12 were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, and many others who provided for them out of their means. Women were the ones who actually funded the ministry of Jesus and helped the things keep going, because uh, we know that the disciples probably would have starved if... if uh, 
if they didn't have those women there uh, to help them and show them, how in the world do I do this? How do I make dinner for myself? Uh, these women would have been there to help. What an amazing place women have in the kingdom of God. Take a look at verse 9. In fact, Jesus says of her, Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So many women throughout the ages of church history who did amazing acts of service and sacrifice out of faith and love to the Lord Jesus, whose testimonies continue to this day in far-reaching uh, far places. Women play a significant role in the kingdom of Christ, but also, I think from Mary's example, we see that holding nothing back for Jesus will seem wasteful in the world's eyes, but it is always beautiful in the eyes of Jesus. The men in the dining room that night, acting according to the hardness of their heart, thinking with the mind of the flesh, are really an example of the wider world, who, when, when they see the church doing what it does, when they see believers holding nothing back for Jesus, but giving their all in a life of service, they just don't make, it doesn't make sense to them. And just like Ted read for us in the book of Jude, we get scoffed, we get misunderstood. But the glory of it is Jesus sees the heart. He could see that she had done what she could, and that she had done a beautiful thing. Mary is the very epitome of Romans chapter 12, verse 1. In light of the mercies of God, give yourselves up as living sacrifices to him as your spiritual act of worship. From Mary, we see the example of holding nothing back for Jesus. But the story turns, and Mark contrasts her with the figure who stands as a warning to us, a warning of turning your back on Jesus. Take a look at verse 10. Verse 10, Mark says, Then Judas Iscariot, who is one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. I think it's significant that Mark says, then, after that particular event, was when Judas made his decision that he was going to betray Jesus. What about this event in particular was the tipping point for Judas? And once again, John's gospel helps us. He says in John chapter 12, verse 6, when he started berating Mary, John says, Judas said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charged the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. He was a man who struggled with the love of money. He used to steal from the funds of Jesus' ministry. And now as he sees this, this, this amazing, uh, valuable item that has, in his eyes, been wasted, and he sees Jesus commend Mary, that was the tipping point. He said, I'm done, I am done. Now, we are not given details into all the motives of why this in particular was the tipping point. I don't think that Judas just made this a flippant decision. I think that Judas' mind and heart was probably ruminating on whether he would continue to follow Jesus or not. I think that Judas was a man who followed Jesus as long as there was apparent advantages to doing so. And as the ministry kept going... As Jesus' teaching kept getting harder and harder to digest, especially as Jesus goes into Jerusalem and makes a mess of the temple, uh, really getting critical about the higher-ups in the Jewish elite, 
I think Judas started seeing better opportunities for personal gain somewhere else, and he made his decision. Do you see the contrast? Mary, who is marked by personal sacrifice for Jesus, and Judas, who is marked by seeking after personal gain. Genuine believers are always going to be marked by making personal sacrifices of love to Jesus. But when we see those who have fallen away from the faith, 10 out of 10, it is always because there is something personal to gain by doing so. It may not be money, but it might be the approval of the world. It might be seeming more relevant in the eyes of your own culture. It may seem, uh, it may be trying to keep your friends who disagree with your beliefs rather than staying faithful to the Lord Jesus. I don't think it's a coincidence that Judas' betrayal comes right on the heels of Jesus' warning and his teaching that we looked at last week when he said, stay awake, be on your guard. And Judas didn't heed the warning. Who would have ever thought that one of the 12 disciples would be the one who would ultimately betray Jesus? Judas, one who heard every sermon that Jesus ever preached. Judas, the one who with his own eyes saw all the miracles that Jesus did. The one who had personal fellowship with Jesus and counted him as a friend and walked with him every step of the way for three years, who would have ever thought that he would be one who would let go? I think he stands as a warning to each one of us, and the warning that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, when he says, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. I'm sure you're like me. You, you have friends who are a heartbreak to you, and are a headache to you, you wonder what happened. Years ago, they sat around your dining room, your, your thing that you sit around to eat dinner, your dining room table, and you talked about Jesus together. You sat next to them in church, and they had their hands raised, singing all the songs. They prayed for you day by day. They went on mission trips with you. And where are they today? All of us have friends and family. We just don't understand what happened. Why did they fall away? Why did the fire go out? We don't know. But we know this. They didn't stay awake. They didn't stay on their guard. They didn't take heed lest they fall. It's a sinister note in verse 11. Verse 11, Judas, speaking of Judas, it says, he sought an opportunity to betray him. I think it's entirely possible that some of you here this morning, in your heart, you too may be seeking an opportunity to betray Jesus. That voice of the enemy coming into your mind, into your heart, you're starting to say to yourself, you know, I'm just not sure about this whole Christianity thing. Not really sure what the Bible, not sure that I like what the Bible has to say about sin, about following Jesus. I'm not sure about the claims. Friends, if that is you, start speaking up. 
Start sharing with the people around you, the Christian friends that you can trust, sharing those doubts, sharing those inner struggles that you're having. Take heed. Fall full on the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not give him up. Like Mary, fight for the eyes of faith to see all that Jesus has suffered and done for you and how worth it, worth how worthy it is to lay our all down. So many of us, we, we have spiritual dementia, don't we? Uh, we know what Jesus has done. We know all of the goodness of who he says he is, but sometimes the temptations of this world come in and we just forget. We kind of lose our minds. And we need each other. We need each other to remind ourselves of the goodness that we have. Well, Mark's contrast is clear in this passage. Personal gain now for everlasting shame later, the example and warning of Judas. Or we can be like Mary, personal sacrifice out of love to Jesus now for everlasting glory for all eternity. Here we are in 2023 still telling her story of the simple act of faith and sacrifice that she made to love Jesus and to anoint and honor him. And what is the hope that we have, those of us who, like Mary, are trusting in the Lord Jesus, wanting to do what we can, wanting to do beautiful things for him, wanting to lay our all at his feet and give all we have to his honor and glory. For those who hold nothing back, we can be sure that he is the one who is able to keep us from turning our back. He is the God who promises to keep us kept. As Ted read for us in our scripture reading, and with this we'll close, the great promise of Jude 24 and 25. Who is God for those who truly trust in him and trust in Christ for salvation? He is the one who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. And to him, the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, just like Mary did. We give him all glory, all majesty, all dominion and authority before all times and now and forever. To all who hold nothing back for Jesus, we can be sure that he will keep us from turning our back. Let's pray.